A reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts at chapter 17 and reading from verses 16 to 34 in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of the others. Amen, and may God bless to us this reading from his word. So Paul found himself in Athens. Athens was not just the foremost city in Greece, it was the place of thinking, the intellectual beating heart of the Roman Empire. In fact, it had been that way for 500 years before Rome was even on the scene. It was the place where philosophy and science had really been developed. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates had taught there. 
Euripides had developed poetry, Herodotus history, Pericles had thought of early ideas of democracy in that city. Paul found himself alone in that stunning place. And he was an educated chap. He'd learned from the best scholars in Jerusalem. He must just have been thrilled to be in such a significant place. But the Bible tells us that as he wandered round, what struck him wasn't all the intellectual thought. It was the idolatry. If you go to Athens even today, you will see above the city the ancient hill of the Acropolis. And there you will find even today the temples. There were so many temples there. Not just to the goddess Athena, who was the patron of that place, but also temples to Apollo, 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 temples to Zeus, temples to Asclepius, temples to Dionysius, temples to Aphrodite, and even a temple called the Pantheon, which literally means the temple to all the gods. And that was just on the hill. As Paul had wandered around the city, he would have seen shrines and altars, the new temples that were being built to the spirit of Roma to worship the emperor and the gods of Rome as well. In fact, one commentator visiting Athens had said, in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. As Paul looked at all this, he saw what is described in the Bible as many idols or, or literally a forest of idols. And we're told simply that he was greatly distressed. Those words greatly distressed don't really capture what Paul would have felt that day for the words connect with an Old Testament idea of the prophets when they looked at the idolatry of the people and they were distressed because the glory of God was being given to other things. Paul wandered around that city with a love for the one true God who had made the world and revealed himself in his son. What he saw was that glory of God not being given where it was due, but being given to all of these idols, all of these false gods, and he was greatly distressed. I wonder as we look around our cities and towns today, what we see, maybe not shrines to pagan gods, but do we see where people's hearts are? where people's aspirations and thoughts are as we look at the buildings that we build, at the lives that we lead? Does it lead us, like Paul, to be greatly distressed that people don't acknowledge, people don't know the one true God who made heaven and earth and reveals himself in Jesus Christ? So what did Paul do with this great distress? Well, it tells us in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Notice this. He does two things. First of all, he does what Paul had done in every other city. He goes to the synagogue. He talks to those who have, he has something in common with, the, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. We spoke about them Last week, that's Greeks who had a belief in the one true God, the God that you find they found in the Old Testament. But he didn't just go there with his preaching. He also went into the marketplace. This is important. When we think of the marketplace today, I suppose we think of the shops in the center of, of Motherwell. We think of a place that we go to shop to, to buy things. But the ancient marketplace, the Agora, was far more than that, and particularly in a city like Athens, which was a cultural centre. 
It was a place of commerce, yes, but it was also the place where new ideas were shared. If you wanted to know what was going on, you went down to the Agora. That was where a herald would proclaim a message from an emperor and news was shared. It was a financial centre, a place of trade. It was also an idea where things were debated. It was the place where, in a sense, university life happened in the open air. In fact, we'll read later on about the Stoics, and the Stoics got their name because they met in the Stoa, which was a sort of colonnaded area in the Agora. Ideas shared and, and all sorts of things happening there. It was the place of art, the place of theatre, the place of drama. Everything that was going to happen in a culture happened in the Agora. So here was what Paul's doing. The gospel that he wants to proclaim isn't just in the religious place, that individual lives might be changed, but it's also right in the cultural heart of this most cultural city. It's not just that the gospel comes and individuals find a faith. We, we saw that last week in Philippi with the, the change in the lives of, of Lydia, of the, the jailer, of, of, of the slave girl. But it's actually that the gospel is for the whole of society to shape the world around us, to shape the political, the economic, the whole forces of how we do life together. I suppose today we would want to say that the gospel isn't just for individuals, but it's for Holyrood. It's for the universities. It's for the arts community. It's for the BBC and the media. It's for the city chambers on the stock exchange. It's all of these things that we want to share and proclaim the gospel in. Of course, we have the benefit of hindsight of sitting and knowing what happened next. Because actually in those years, the gospel that was proclaimed changed all of those things. Over the next 300 years, the whole structures of Rome, its politics, its religion, its economics were all to be transformed as Rome gradually became a Christian empire. Gladiator games, family life, economics, slavery, all these things were to be changed by the gospel that was proclaimed. The other thing that we notice from this is it says that Paul went and reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. What does that mean? Well, it almost certainly means that what was going on was an exchange of views. Paul was going and he was stating what he believed, but he was also listening, answering questions working out what people there thought, being in what we would call a dialogue today. It's amazing that so little of our politics today is actually dialogue. It's basically people shouting at one another. But here was a true debate going on. The Socratic method, the Athenians would have known it as, it was the idea that you didn't just teach by soapboxing, you taught by allowing people to ask questions, to probe, to argue, to test the strength of what you were saying. So here is Paul going with a conviction of a great big message, of a Bible message that affects every part of existence, and proclaiming that to people who are interested and connected with every part of existence. If we were to think of an example from our own Scottish history, we might look to the story of our Scottish Reformation where reformers like John Knox didn't just look on a need to change what people believe, but actually looked at the whole structure of the church with its corruption, the whole structure of Scottish political life, and had a heart to change everything. 
Knox famously prayed, give me Scotland or I die. Which is picking up some of that idea that Paul had as he looked in Athens of that great distress that somehow Jesus wasn't at the centre of all of this. And that was a whole generation in Scotland that began to shape and change our society, that it would be centred on the living God and his gospel. While he was debating in the marketplace, Paul met two groups of philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. They had been for the previous 300 years or so debating the meaning of life right in the heart of Athens. The Stoics concentrated on ethics. Their thought was that the world was rational and you should live by rational principles. But that reason that lay behind the world, they called it the Logos, the word, wasn't something that you could relate to. You just had to accept it. The purpose of life, and I'm greatly simplifying Stoic thought here, was that you just learned to live with the way things were. You, you kept yourself detached, not getting upset by things that were outside your control, living a virtuous, strong life and being a strong person. I suppose today we might see Stoicism in that expression that we hear in Scotland of what's for you and no go by you, so you might as well get on with it. That was Stoicism. Certainly no idea, though, that you could have a personal encounter with God. The Epicureans took a slightly different view. They believed that the gods, if they existed at all, were so remote that they weren't interested in the lives of ordinary human beings. In fact, they didn't even believe that the gods had created the world. They believed that the world came by chance as atoms collided together. There was no point to it. There was no meaning to it. There was no life after this life. And so the purpose of life, according to the Epicureans, was just to be happy. Be happy. Live the life the way that you want to live your life. They got a reputation of being hedonists, basically enjoying fun and sex and whatever else. I guess, again, we can see them in some of the influences in our society today that say, you know, just do what feels right to you and don't worry too much about anything else. There is no meaning. There are no absolutes. There are no rights and wrongs. It's just about living life in a way that fulfills you. The interesting thing is that although both of these philosophies were very influential in their day, neither survived the encounter that they actually had with Christianity. Because in the end, people found that Christianity wasn't just what they came to believe, but was just more satisfying. It wasn't cold and impersonal like the Stoics with their ethics and their morality. And it wasn't selfish and abased like the Epicureans with their just enjoy life and don't worry about it. But for that moment, Paul was invited by them to the Areopagus, which was the heart of Athens' debating place. It's a large block of rock that's still there to today. It's the sort of Oxford University of the day where you really went for real debate. And I think that just encourages us to know this. Sometimes today we're left feeling that our Christianity is, is marginalised, that there are clever people and scientists who believe all these things and we just are holding on to our little faith. But we should have confidence that what we believe and what the Bible teaches is true. And because it's true, it can hold its own 
in the philosophical debates. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand all of the thinking in science. But one of the things that really encourages me is where I hear scientists who aren't Christians, who sometimes will decry Christianity, of knowing that there are very many smart Christians who have looked at all the scientific facts and also know their Bible, and for them these two things marry up and come together. So where's Paul to start as he talks to all these intellectuals on the Areopagus? It's interesting to see where he begins because he doesn't begin with ranting or soapboxing. He begins with observing. I've been watching you. I've been listening to you. As I've wandered around your city, I can see that you're very religious. It's a place of common ground here that we have. But then he also notes that he's noticed that they themselves sense that something is missing. There is that altar to the unknown God that he's seen. Now maybe it was just there because some group of people thought we worship 200 gods, maybe there's 201 and we better keep that one happy. But maybe also a sense that there was more to it than they saw in their religion. And so Paul says to them effectively, I want to proclaim to you that unknown God. But not just another God that you can add to the ones that you've got. I want to proclaim to you a great big God. An enormous God. A God who will replace everything that you are looking at and fulfill your lives. And so he goes on to proclaim the God who made heaven and earth, the God who sustains everything, the God who holds the universe in being, the God who doesn't need a temple or an acropolis or a shrine, but the God who shapes and makes the world. You see, what Paul is proclaiming couldn't be any more different from the Greco-Roman gods that surrounded them in the city. The problem with Greek and Roman gods was that they were really quite human. They were shaped both literally as they, they made the carved statues, but also shaped in the thinking of the people who dreamt them up. The gods could sometimes be friendly. They could sometimes be nice. They could also be capricious and angry and downright nasty. They quarreled and they fought. They were really quite like us. Now that might be reassuring in some ways, and it might be quite nice to think that you could do something or offer something or, or worship in a way that might have one of these gods supporting you and looking after you. But you are never going to love these gods. You are never going to adore them. You are never going to want to worship them with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength because they were too like you. They were made and shaped in your image. Today, I, we don't worship gods like that, or, or do we? You see, a lot of people today will say, well, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And I always want to ask a question. What do you mean by that? How do you understand that? See, the problem with a lot of spirituality is that Spirituality ends up like those pagan gods, shaped by us. They are to help us. And so spirituality we look to to give us peace and to give us strength, to support us, 
but basically we're looking for it to support our agenda to get us where we want to be, to make us the type of people we think we should be, to support us and encourage us to do the things that we've already decided are right. We never really worship that. We never really have a God that shapes us and changes us and transforms us. You see, the thing is, when you worship the God of the Bible, when you worship the great big God who made everything, you don't shape him he shapes you. You don't project what you think and what your needs are up into the heavens, but rather the one who made you begins to change and transform you. It becomes about his priorities, not your priorities. His love, not your love. His kingdom, not your kingdom. I'm always struck when people say, I, you know, I cannot believe in the Christian God because I don't agree with this in the Bible or that in the Bible. What makes you think that God agrees with you? What makes you think that if there is a truth behind the whole universe who made all things and shapes all things, that it's going to coincide with your values and your priorities and what you think is important? That type of God isn't really worth worshipping at all because that's just a God that you made that agrees with you like they did with those pagan gods. The God that Paul proclaims that day is the God who sets the agenda for the whole world. We can read of this in verse 26 where it says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is a God that sets the agenda. This is a God who tells us what's right and what's wrong, who sets the boundaries. The Epicureans would have said life is just about being happy. There aren't any rights and wrongs. There aren't any agendas. We see that today in a lot of folk who have a very relativist view of things. What's right is just what I think is right. The problem with that is that deep within us, we know it doesn't work. We still feel that certain things are just intrinsically wrong, whatever you think or I think. Here, Paul proclaims a God who sets the agenda, who makes the boundaries. Why? Because he made everything. And then he goes on to say something else. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Now at this point, Paul is speaking almost directly to the Stoics. The Stoics did believe there was a God who set the boundaries. They believed the world had a rational form, a set of rules that you could live by. But ultimately, God was impersonal. He couldn't be known. That's why they believed in being dispassionate. No, says Paul, this God can be known. This God wants to make himself known to you. The Stoics believed there was a rational principle. They called it the Logos, the word behind the world. That word Logos is the same word that's used for word at the beginning of the Gospel of John when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. You see, here's what Christianity is saying at its heart to both of these philosophical groups. There is a God, 
and that is intellectually satisfying. But not just that, that God can be known and that is deeply emotionally satisfying. There is a moral order to the universe, but there's also a personal order because there is a God of love. Paul went on, we know, to speak of more than that. He went on to speak of Jesus, the coming of God. He went on to speak of the resurrection, the breaking in of God to change and transform the whole world that he loved. He didn't get the sermon finished because there started to be objections and he was asked to come back another day and say more. But some people believed. One or two began to catch the whole vision. That was the way it was to be for quite a long time as Christianity dwelt in the minorities and in the margins and with the ones and the twos. But eventually it would begin to do more than that as the gospel reached its full potential and began to transform the whole of society around it. I believe today we more than anything else in Scotland need as a church to have a vision. Not just that people would come to believe and pray and be spiritual, but that they would come to know the God of the whole Bible. The God who begins to challenge our thinking in every part of life, because he made it all. The God who wants to be in the heart of our scientific advances, of our economy, of our structures and our caring. Let us pray in our day and let us work in our day that this gospel that is about the whole of life would again be proclaimed. And let's have the confidence as we think about political things or we think about educational things or we think about right and wrong or we think about ethics or we think about social justice. To believe that as we come to the God of Scripture, we come to a God who made the whole of the world and cares about all of these things and the confidence to share our faith and our gospel in every sphere, just as Paul did. May we find in our day the enormous God, the God who is worthy of all our worship and our adoration. Amen.